Welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. This is the next episode in a series we've been looking at considering our identity in Christ Jesus. We began the series a few episodes ago talking about who we are or answering the question, you know, who am I? And looking at what the Father has to say or what God's Word says about those who are in Christ. Things such as chosen, blessed, redeemed, sealed, adopted, forgiven. And then last episode, we talked a little bit about what we need because of who we are and what's been given to us in Christ because of who we are. Um, his, we have a hope because of uh, having a living Savior. We have power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that dwells within us. And so really what the series is about so far is focusing on knowing our identity in Christ as a result of God's work and salvation. And in this episode, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at, about, looking at who we were really to praise God for who we now are, for those that are in Christ. If you wanted to break down the book again of Ephesians, it really could look like chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about who we are in Christ, or who we be, if you will, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 is what we are to do as believers. Um, It's a really interesting letter that Paul wrote because it's not really one of correction, it's really one of encouragement. And so because of that, just as all his letters are appropriate, this is also an appropriate letter for us today because we need encouragement uh, to live and navigate the life that God has given to us and the world in which we live. And so Ephesians chapter 2 is where I am today to start off this episode, and we're considering who we were. And it seems a little bit dark and gloomy, as this passage does, um, but it leads to really good news. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all have once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what Paul basically said there is that before Jesus, I was dead. You were dead. We are born spiritually dead. It sounds like an oxymoron. We're born alive, but dead spiritually. Maybe you've heard folks say, you know, I'm not spirit. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And in a sense, that's half true, and that everyone has a soul or spirit. But not everyone is spiritually alive. So where did this being dead in our sin come from? Well, we see examples of this in both the Old and New Testament. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, the psalmist writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Fast forward into the New Testament, we see Paul writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. In the Bible, death can be physical, something we all have in common, and we will all die physically. In fact, everyone that Jesus healed, and also, in fact, everyone that Christ resurrected eventually died again. So those people died twice, thinking of Lazarus there. We all experience a physical death. But death can also mean in Scripture, like separation from God. Being, being born into sin means we arrive cut off from God. And our sin seeks to keep us cut off from enjoying the love of God. And it's what spiritually dead people do. It's they, um, they live spiritually dead. And so what does spiritual deadness look like? Well, Paul really tells us this in these first few verses in chapter 2. In verse 
or chapter, yeah, two, starting in verse two, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and those, or in the sons of disobedience, verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul begins the chapter by saying, in a sense, at least my words of what Paul is saying, before Jesus I was dead. Then he continues on by saying, spiritual deadness looks like, well, before Jesus I was disobedient. How? Well, he kind of breaks it down in three ways. First was that we followed the world. That's the way of thinking, doing, living according to culture. And so we would like to think most of us as believers that we're above culture, um, but culture really does pull and draw us. It impacts our thinking, our doing, our living. In fact, even how sales works plays upon what's going on within us. It appeals to what's going on inside. When you see like save 70% or money back guarantees or new and approved, well, I got a habit, it's new and approved or buy one, get one free. Well, it'd be stupid not to buy that because I get one free as if they didn't wrap the price of the second one into the first in their minds. And it works because we're conformed already to believe and behave. So if we're following the world, guess who isn't being followed at the same time? That's right, Jesus. So what does it look like to follow the world uh, in real specific ways? Well, Paul writes to a young pastor and, and found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5, He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, unappeasable, that is, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. That passage is tough. Who gets through that passage unscathed? I certainly don't. We like to think we are. Man, we really do live in such times, we say to ourselves, but I'm a part of such times. There's room for me to grow. There's room for me to repent and to confess, to repent and receive again and again the forgiveness of God waiting for me. Not in position, I'm positionally forgiven, but relationally with God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So it's another example of what Paul is saying in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2 of Ephesians that we used to follow the world. And we see it again in 2 Timothy and in 1 John. So when we follow the world, we take in its influences, values, attitudes, habits, lifestyles, and we really like make them our own. There's another example in which we follow the, uh, that we're disobedient. One is following the world. And that next Paul says that we follow the prince of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the text says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a heavy uh, identity thing statement there, the sons of disobedience. And so he's saying you follow the prince of the world before Christ. That's who we follow. The prince mentioned here is Satan, I believe. And now let me just say this. Let me be clear. He, I don't believe that Satan's omnipresent. He's not. It's not him working on each person. But he is influencing people who influence people to live like him, to crush, steal, kill, and destroy people. And so he wants others to be like him, to reject the love of God. So he's a liar. He's saying anything else is better than the love of the Father. 
He attempts to offer life in things that only bring death. He desires to lure people to find an identity outside of what is given to us or afforded to us in Christ Jesus. So all Satan offers is destruction, and all who follow him offer the same. So everyone brought into this world is spiritually dead, the text says, following the world and following Satan's influence. And painfully, there's more. It says this in verse 3, Among whom we've all lived, lived it's what we've lived with the sons of disobedience, among whom we've all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we follow the world before Christ. Before Christ, we follow the prince of this world. Uh, before Christ, we follow sinful desires is what Paul is saying. So in context, sinful desires are like the wishes, the wills, or the cravings that we have uh, that are against God. So our sin nature wants to direct our appetite of our mind away from the love of God, away from trusting in Him. An example of that, Paul writes to the believers in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So following simple desires here, keeping that in mind, what are the evident works of the flesh? Paul tells the Galatian believer, the Galatian believers, uh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that all who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What comes to your mind when you hear me read that list? You could think, well, I don't, you know, I don't practice um, sorcery, so and I haven't been drunk, so at least it's been a while. Maybe you feel pride that you don't fall into that list. For me, I think, how do I get through it? You know, if I violate any of them in the sense I violate all of them, how will I ever get into the kingdom if I have these things? What hope do I have? And so maybe you have guilt and shame over some of the issues being mentioned in that text. And truthfully, we've all followed the ways of the world, Satan's influence, and sought to satisfy our own cravings in life. We've turned in on ourselves. And sadly, there's more that Paul is pointing us to in verse 3 again. Among whom, so among the sons of disobedience, we've all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So before Jesus, I was also, I was doomed. Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath. That's tough to say when you think about children being born in this world. But what does that mean? Well, God's wrath is his constant hostility toward evil, sin, and our sinful nature. Because of his great love, his wrath hates the sin that is seeking to destroy his creation, I think. He hates the sin that is destroying people. And all are made in his image. So I would say, this is my belief, that his wrath is justifiable and right because of his love for people. So I believe, you know, some people I see pitch God's love versus God's justice as if they're like contrasting, but I believe his justice flows from his love. This may seem strange to say, and I'll have to think, keep thinking through it, but it's almost as if like his wrath flows from, flows from a position to love. Because he hates sin, he does so because he loves people. He hates the sin that is killing the people that he loves. And I believe he loves all, but not are willing, not all are willing to receive his love. So before Jesus, the text is saying in a sense that we're doomed. If you look at the status of a person's life without Jesus, then the situation could not be more hopeless in these first three verses of Ephesians chapter two. It's bad. And it's not just like a sickness. Sin isn't just like a sickness that needs healing. It's not just a new set of behaviors that are needed. What is needed is like a is a resurrection, a, a total resurrection, not just 
uh, resuscitation, but like a, a born again experience, a rebirth, a new nature, a rescue. And I understand, like, this message isn't popular. Let's talk about sin. And this message seems really to be about, like, how bad our sin is. But that's probably good for us to think about. Why to think about this? Well, I think Paul is intentionally drawing his readers to the depth of depravity. And we need to think about the depth of our depravity. I do. In order to magnify the love, mercy, and grace of God. Or it better magnifies that. When we see the depth of our sin, we see how beautiful and wonderful is the love, mercy, and grace of God. So it's at this point that we come to some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So before Jesus, I was dead. I was spiritually dead. Before Jesus, I followed the world. I followed the prince of the power of the air. I followed my simple desires. Before Jesus, I was doomed. But because of Jesus, I am made alive. Now we're back to true identity claims for those that are in Christ. Add alive to the list. The very power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, raises us from spiritual death unto life. And it's all by his grace, the passage says. This is God's work in salvation. And I know that we can look to man's responsibility in responding to God's work, but Paul's focusing specifically on God's part in salvation. This is God's character in the face of our greatest need. We need him. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't make a spiritually alive choice on our own. We needed him to act. He first loved us. Then we loved him, I believe First John says. And the text here says, we're made alive. I remember long ago, uh, this might have been 14, 15 years ago, uh, serving at a church as a youth pastor, serving students grades 7 through 12, and we would try to introduce new songs of worship to them. And at the time, there was a song by an artist, um, the David Crowder Band, and I think the name of the song was You Alone. It speaks to, about God and how he stands alone in his character and what he's able to do. But the bridge of that song went something like this, and it may irritate us now. Some of us older folks now don't like repetition, but the bridge was, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. And it used to even annoy me a bit back then, but now I understand the beauty of that bridge because that is an identity claim. We praise God, or we are to praise God, because he's made us alive in Christ. It's actually a beautiful song. It's a beautiful sentiment to to worship God because, well, without him we couldn't worship him because we would be dead spiritually. So in Christ, but by God's great love and mercy, he's made us alive. Verse 5 continues on with the true identity claims. Not only are we alive, but the text says in verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So because of Jesus, not only am I alive, but because of Jesus, I am saved. And the word saved, or or the phrase like, I'm saved, for some has become like a throwaway church phrase. Are you saved? But this happens when we fail to remember who we were before Jesus came into our lives. What does it mean to be saved? Well, most often I, I perceive when Christians think of being saved, they think of being separated or spared from hell. And maybe that's just part of it. But if we make salvation only about the locations of heaven and hell, we lose the most important point. 
relationship. We are saved from ourselves, from the wrath of God against our sin and sin nature, and we are saved from separation, but we are also saved to someone, to God. In love, he is continually pursuing people into his perfect and pure love to save them unto himself. So I invite you to consider your salvation is not just about heaven one day, but unto a relationship. You're saved unto relationship. And there's more. I mean, this would be enough of a blessing to be alive and saved, but there's more. Verses 6 and 7 show us. By grace have you been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So because of Jesus, I am alive and I am saved. And because of Jesus, I am raised and seated, the text says. This is our position in Christ. What it means is that our home is with with him, not here in this place. Our forever home is wherever he is. That's where we get to be. When you're raised and seated with Christ, you're with him. And don't forget it. And this would be enough, but there's more. Verse 8 and 9. Maybe you've heard these verses or have these hidden in your heart to speak a phrase that I grew up with. But in verse 8, the text says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, Paul shows us the act of being saved by grace through faith has its source in God, not self. It's all grace. I believe faith is granted as a grace. Salvation is a grace. To know God is a grace. And so this is all a gift, the text says. And why is that so? So that no one can brag that it's all about themselves. It's all about him and what he's done. His part in redemptive history. His redemptive Plan. It's a really, really important few verses. But you know what? All the years I heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I never heard anyone preach verse 10 or share about verse 10. And I think that if I would have known this verse as a youth, it would have changed a lot of things for me. And I just never grabbed onto it. Or I never remember anyone really enforcing this verse. They always enforced verses 8 and 9 to keep us from a works-based salvation. But verse 10 also is beautiful. Listen to the verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The English word here, workmanship, is the Greek word poema. It can mean work of art or masterpiece. And what God's doing here is is God's taking people who are dead, spiritually dead, and only produce death, and brings them to life, true life, for his purposes and his plan. This is his art. Now, my wife's an amazing artist. She can really draw anything she sees. She can put things together. She can paint. She can sketch. Um, She can put things together. She can solve almost any puzzle and make a picture. Um, My daughter is an amazing artist, um, growing and growing every day, and commits a lot of time to it. She just has an eye. Uh, And they can produce things. Well, God's artistry is taking someone who is dead spiritually and making them look like, act like, think like, view the world like Him. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's his masterpiece. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, you are his masterpiece. You know, when you think about people that love his handiwork, we, we have people, and I have people in my lives that my life that loves to look at the stars. They love to walk in creation. They love the outdoors. 
And they see God's character and his creation. They see his majesty. They see his skill. But the ultimate version of God's artistry is really found in the changing of a heart, bringing to life that which is dead. It is beautiful. He takes an enemy with a will bent against his goodness and he adopts that person into his family and molds and makes that person to a person so as to be a reflection of himself in this dark world. That is actually supernatural art, I would say. And so the lie to this statement that Christians so often believe is that we are defined by like the ugliness of our sin rather than our Savior and rather than the character of God that's being cultivated in us. Speaking candidly with you uh, through this podcast, what would you say if you stumbled upon one of your children looking in the mirror and saying of him or herself that I'm so ugly or hating how they view themselves? I know for me, you know, starting in middle school through, through high school, I can remember times, you know, getting ready for bed at night and looking in the mirror and hating what God made. Uh, probably starting around sixth grade. And I remember, you know, washing my face an hour and a half or two hours a night sometimes. Um, I just hated what I was seeing in the mirror. And it was a terrible battle. And I had no concept really of God's view of me. I knew that I was saved by grace, but I had no idea that God is working out his masterpiece in me. And I know I'm speaking physically and we can say, well, God's working spiritually. But what would you say to your child who said that? I experienced this once, my wife and I did with one of our children. Um, My wife stumbled upon uh, my daughter's bedroom at one point, catching her saying some really negative things about herself, and my wife pressed into a conversation with my daughter, and it was really tender, but my daughter just wouldn't believe what my wife was saying, and ultimately, from time to time, uh, my wife will call me in to be part of the conversation, to which I'm grateful, but I also know that means it's getting quite challenging. And my daughter just wouldn't believe my wife. And so I listened to what the issues were and what the concerns were and the heartache was and the devastation. And um, I recognized that just saying, well, no, you're not, or you're beautiful, or, you know, as you're seeing it isn't how it is. She just wasn't going along with me. And so I basically asked God for help in the middle of the conversation. And he loves to come through, by the way, just praying to God for help on how to speak to my little one. And basically the Lord, I believe, provided a wisdom to say this to her. What you're saying isn't true, but when it is, I'll let you know. And until that time, you are not allowed to believe what you're saying. And tearfully, because of my authority in her life, she said, okay. She cried and said, okay. And so I said, I'll let you know. So you can count on me. So you look to me um, and I'll let you know. But until that time, you're not allowed to believe it. What would it be like? To engage the Father like that. The Father. To say, I'm not allowed to believe things about myself until my Father says. I'm only allowed to believe what He says. I think for my own life, my inner life would have been so different if I would have owned verse 10 and not just verses 8 and 9 in my youth. To identify ourselves by what we see in the mirror or our sin rather than how He sees us is really an affront to Christ. This is such an overwhelming truth to hold on to, and I invite you to hold on to Ephesians 2.10, that you are a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Your translation may say that you grow with in advance. It's like from the beginning of time or before time that we should walk in them. And so I believe for everyone that's listening, that's a believer, that God has good works for you to be about, and if you were done with them, then you'd be home with him. 
All this to say that God is up to something in the life of every believer. He's making them into a wonderful masterpiece. And the whole process of that making is also beautiful, I would say. Molding believers into a vessel to display his love as we, by faith, trusting in his love, do the works that he planned especially for each person to do. So what are those good works? What are the good works that God has just for you? Well, I think there's some things that all believers are called to, but there are also some specific things he's calling you to. And in order to know what those things are, it takes like relating with him, talking with him, spending time with him, asking God to show you something today, making it clear to you what he has for you, spending time in his word, through prayer, of course. So that makes Bible reading and prayer not impersonal, but like an act of total dependence and an opportunity, looking for opportunity. And so this is the new identity. Because of God, the Father's love demonstrated through his Son, Jesus Christ's work on the cross, and by the power of the God's Holy Spirit, we are blessed, chosen, loved, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed, alive, raised and seated, and a masterpiece. And I invite you, moreover, the scriptures invite you, and Christ himself invites you through his spirit to live in the reality of this new identity.